He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. All right. Well, we've already started talking, so I guess I ought to start recording. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I am uh, Phil's sidekick and talking hairdo, although there's not much hair anymore. Jack healed. And we are joined today by Dr. Andrew Kutnick, um, who's going to make our second consecutive week of hopefully helping us nerd out on some of the science behind a healthy metabolism. Phil, why don't you introduce our guest uh, a little more? Yeah, I was so excited for this conversation. We got going before we got recording, but uh, really uh, excited to uh, have this conversation with Andrew. Uh, been following him uh, and his work now for quite a while. Uh, he gets into so many interesting areas, uh, both um, as we'll talk about the management of his own health conditions and then um, some really uh, top level research into uh, many of the issues around um, nutrition. Uh, so, with that, let me turn it over to Andrew Kutnick and let him uh, kind of introduce himself to our audience and give a little bit of his background. Well, Jack and Philip, it's uh, it's an honor to be here, guys. Uh, my background uh, has actually started in exercise physiology. So I I was actually, <clears throat> let me back up even further. My, my journey here actually started because I was an obese kid. Uh, I started as an overweight and ended up becoming obese kid. Uh, and found lifestyle nutrition could transform that, transform my life, transform my outcomes. Uh, no longer was obese after you know struggling with it for about six, seven years, used lifestyle and exercise to get there. But uh, a year later, I get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So a totally disconnected thing. It was over 12 months later that I get diagnosed with type 1. And then, um, you know, felt that one wait, of the most powerful- it was the, yep. the being obese was not related to being type 1. I'm, I'm the non-scientist here, okay? Yeah. So a good question, Jack. So we don't totally understand why someone like me or someone else gets type 1 diabetes. We know there's a host of susceptibilities uh, that lead someone like me to be at risk, um, but there's environmental and genetic factors. So your parents okay. give you some level of risk, but your environment also contributes. So even if you have two identical twins, there's only about a 50% risk of if one has type 1, the other one's going to get it. So we know hmm. that at best, um, it's not 100% genetic. We know there's some environmental factor leading into it. These are There's been a number of hypotheses around this, whether it's uh, vitamin D exposure, breast milk. Um, there's been some solid science around um, uh, viral exposures uh, by someone named Kendra Vahic, a friend of mine at University of South Florida. So there's a number of things that ultimately cause the immune system to change uh, and ultimately attack our own bodies is the simple way of putting it. And ultimately kill the cells in the body that produce insulin, uh, but also those same cells detect glucose. So they detect glucose, act like a thermostat for your blood glucose levels. So as glucose goes high, these beta cells in the pancreas detect it. As you get higher and higher, uh, they release a, a proportional dose response to the insulin right into circulation. And for most, well, I guess the United States, no, no I can't necessarily say that most people, but there are a lot of people who are healthy, that have a normal response uh, and normal functioning metabolism that immediately responds to glucose elevations. And in my case, in type one diabetes, 
I don't have these cells anymore. So uh, for all intents and purposes, there's nuance to that. But for the most part, they don't, they, they're not there and they're not functioning. And so I have to inject every single day. And I don't know if this is uh, any video recording or not, but, you know, I have a list, yep. you know, three different vials of insulin syringes and a blood glucose meter, a CGM. And these are the tools that kind of uh, help me stay alive is, is the uh, frank way to put it. Uh, and uh, I, I guess that's the the overview on type one, Jack. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah, and just to, uh, you know, make it clear, um, and I forget if we've really discussed this on the podcast before, you know, the distinction between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is basically type 1 diabetes, your body no longer makes insulin, uh, while in type 2 diabetes, it's actually your body is making excessive insulin, but the cells aren't responding to it, uh, essentially. And they both end up with too much glucose in the bloodstream, uh, but they're very different problems. And it's yeah. kind of interesting that we um, treat them and evaluate them the same way in that we're just looking to lower the blood glucose level. And we don't really pay attention to the differing insulin environment uh, with the two conditions. And there's a lot of nuance into that. I mean, it's a great way of describing and distinguishing type one and type two. Uh, but, you know, you might look at someone who's type one that historically they were thin, a normal body weight, normal lipid profiles versus type two, typically are overweight or obese or have some various risk factors. Uh, leading to insulin resistance ultimately. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, in type 1, the phenotype is starting to change quite a bit. So we know that in type 1 diabetes, that the population of those, uh, the incidence of it is, is rising. It's actually modeled that by 2040, actually in a 2021 uh, model, a 2022 model analysis by Gregory and Lancet uh, showed that we expect that people with type 1 are expected to double by 2024. We also know that the uh, COVID epidemic also appeared to cause short-term uh, rise in the incidence of type 1, although it's not really clear if that's entirely true. It appears that there's some signs of that. Um, but nonetheless, and there's also an, a rising incidence of obesity in type 1 diabetes, modeling that of the general population. In fact, in some reports, exceeding it. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why that might be. But ultimately, people with type 1 diabetes were largely thought to just have dysglycemia. So uh, irregular glucose control, and you have to manage it every day with insulin. But un unfortunately, there it's much more complex than that uh, uh, nowadays. And uh, there's other comorbidities um, that are coming along uh, with the trends we see in the general population. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a great path for us to go down uh, because, you know, traditionally, so type 1 diabetics um, without uh, exogenous insulin therapy will basically waste away to death. Um, yes. One of the things that insulin does is allows our body to store fat. Um, and uh, we have now run into an issue where the mainstream advice around type 1 diabetics, and this is what I really would love to hear uh, your opinion on, uh, has been to, you know, uh, balance your insulin use with your carbohydrate intake. Uh, and really, the suggestion is to have what many of us would consider an excessive amount of carbohydrates and then balance that with injecting insulin. And this has allowed many type 1 diabetics now to get obese uh, because they're eating these carbs and they're, you know, uh, chasing it with the insulin. You've certainly taken a very different approach. Uh, so I'd uh, love to hear some about that. 
So in, in type 1 diabetes, the, the standard paradigm for most patients, and it's not everyone, right? So there's always individualized uh, scenarios for each patient. But the general approach that was utilized for a long period of time, especially when I was diagnosed uh, about 16, almost 17 years ago, was you, you count the amount of carbohydrates you're going to consume, and then you give a, a, a correction ratio, so carb to insulin ratio. Uh, for the amount of carbohydrates you're going to consume. And that could be, you know, one unit for every 10 grams of carbohydrates, one to 15, one to 20, you know, it's all individualized, but that's called carb counting strategy. And it's very commonly used. Um, now with carb counting strategy, uh, the evidence at this point has been systemically analyzed to look at the effectiveness of this approach to actually improve or uh, glycemic control. And the meta-analysis to date that I'm familiar with uh, illustrate that it's ineffective at really moving the needle. Now, there's a number of reasons why we could talk about why that might be, but it's also important to back up for a second mm -hmm. uh, and talk about nutrition in, in general. You know, when we talk about type 1 diabetes, you don't have the ability to detect and automatically release insulin in the body. So what does that mean for a patient? Well, that means that every single meal of every single day, Andrew Kutnick or someone else with type 1 diabetes has to sit down, prepare a meal, look at their meal and decide how much insulin do I need to administer for this meal? How will, What type of insulin should I give? Uh, how many units? Should I take one one dose or multiple doses? Should I extend the dose if I have a pump? Um, what's my current glucose level right now? Because if it's high, should I give additional insulin to account for the food and the elevated glucose levels? All those things are in the mix for accounting for what is often a very difficult situation to, to account for and mathematically calculate it. In essence, you have to become an expert of your own metabolism, whether you're like it or not with type one diabetes, but there's almost an infinite number of factors. In fact, you can go online and Google, uh, changes in, in insulin sensitivity or glucose control and type one diabetes and find lists about 40 long of all the things that can play into changing why I give one unit of insulin one day for one meal and the same meal, the very next day may have a slightly different response. And so it makes things very, very difficult and complex. And that's where it brings attention to what are the most potent factors in type 1 diabetes that actually regulate the diagnostic biomarker for this disease. You know, it's the same diagnostic biomarker for type 2 as it is type 1 in prediabetes. Uh, and that's glucose control. That's epicenter of this disease and management because we know glucose control based on the largest randomized control trials in type 1 diabetes is directly linked to complications long-term. The higher the glucose levels, the dose response elevation and complications related to disease, particularly microvascular diseases and also macrovascular diseases. Although microvascular disease is front and center. For those who aren't familiar with that, that's the small vessels in the eyes, so retinopathy and the, the kidneys. Um, so ne nephropathy, uh, you can have neuropathy. There's other uh, uh, very prone tissues to these elevated glucose levels. But LA glucose levels uh, in type 1 diabetes ultimately lead to someone with my disease uh, being an increased risk for all potential leading causes of death, expected to live about 10 to 47 years shorter, depending on what country you live in and what access you have to healthcare. Um, and that's the average. Like I, I'm expected to live about 10 years shorter than my peers. And uh, I find that that is unacceptable. So to, to look at the scenario that people with our disease have, it, it, it's it, it, we got to do better. Uh, you know, there there has to be something that we can do about this scenario. And that brings up the idea of glucose control. And with, right now in type 1 diabetes, the best tools we have are, are often been uh, advancements in medication types, options, and then technology. In fact, we wrote about this in, in 2021 with Belinda Leonard's at uh, Boston Children's about, uh, and one of the graphs, we actually illustrated the trends in, in advancements 
uh, revolving type 1 diabetes and its management. And the, after the invention of insulin in 19, I believe, 21 by Banting and Best, uh, ultimately transmitted to America shortly after that, and then went worldwide pretty quickly. Uh, before that, people were using um, carbohydrate-restricted or fasting diets, as you mentioned, Philip, the idea of actually you'd waste away. Actually, fasting, ironically, would extend the life of patients, uh, as well as low-carbohydrate diets as well, because it would reduce the incidence of DKA and the acute complications of acute death related to- Okay, okay. You got to yep. remember, speak English. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> sticking with you mostly. Okay. But- so when someone when I got diagnosed, DKA. yeah, let's let me back up and explain that, uh, Jack. So DKA, when I got diagnosed with type one diabetes, actually on a family trip in Washington D.C., I my ketone levels, so I didn't have any insulin on board. So I and I, I, so I wasn't giving insulin because I didn't know I had diabetes. So what was happening is in the absence of insulin, fat oxidation levels go through the roof. Okay, and then ketone production as a byproduct of fat oxidation also goes up. So simple terms. You become, you start oxidizing fat very rapidly because in the absence of insulin, you need to start burning other fuels if you can't use glycolysis pathways. So it burns a lot of fat. You start producing a lot of ketones. Now, ketones have gotten a bad rap from type 1 diabetes, but it was not ketones that were, it was never ketones that were the problem. It was the acid load that is attached to the ketone that when they become too high actually cause patients to ultimately, if uncorrected, die. Now we're talking about unperiferated, very, very high levels of ketones north of 10, 12, 15 millimolar. So if someone's on a ketogenic diet, just for some background, they would probably be somewhere between 0.3, 1.5. In some scenarios, patients can be even up to 1.5 to 5. Um, there's it's, It depends on the individual, sex, body weight, muscle mass, activity, all these things. But nonetheless, in type 1, that's actually where most patients uh, usually end up succumbing to the disease is that initial diagnosis, um, at least initially, uh, because of the acid load. So that's, they call that diabetic ketoacidosis. Is uh, the, I've heard that term. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. And so um, a lot to get into. Uh, one of the other things I think that's important to point out at the same time, you know, uh, you mentioned how glucose control has uh, certainly, uh, you know, correlates with outcomes, uh, but also the amount of insulin um, that a type 1 diabetic uses uh, correlates with outcomes as well. So really all of those outcomes you mentioned, uh, and in particular, the the vascular disease, um, the more insulin you end up using uh, as a type 1 diabetic, the higher risk you were at for these complications. So it's a bit of a conundrum because you need to control your blood sugar and your goal should be to do that with the least amount of insulin. And I think that's where the nutritional strategies really uh, come into play. And and that's a, a really important point you bring up, uh, Phil, because when talking about type 1 diabetes, obviously the first thing you want to do is manage glucose control. It's the one thing that goes wrong. But in order to do that, obviously I, I showed you guys the insulin, but I have to take, you know, this insulin in here, pull it out, directly inject it either my, you know, most people recommend the abdominal region, but sometimes I do it intramuscular, whatever region. Um, and that obviously helps bring glucose into control. The problem is that by administering it that way, it's artificial. So patients with type 1 diabetes are actually administering insulin in artificial manner. So um, 
I don't know your uh, combined metabolic background. Well, let's just say we take a young individual who's young and healthy, normal metabolism, 18 years old, and they don't have diabetes. And they go and eat a you know lunch at Chipotle, rice, beans, everything, like all, all the typical stuff, right? They eat that, their glucose is going to go up, their body's going to release insulin for that, but it releases it in the hepatic portal vein and pre-stored granules of insulin directly into circulation. It immediately detects uh, or in response to that elevation in glucose levels. That brings glucose down and in control. And likely you might not see too much of a blip in someone who's super healthy for in moderate amounts of carbohydrates uh, and depending on the type of carbohydrates. Um, but in the type one diabetic patient, i.e. myself, I'm injecting into the adipose tissue or the muscle. It's not going directly into circulation. So I'm actually hypersaturating my peripheral tissues disproportionately with insulin. So these, they call this iotropic hyperinsulinemia. So in the case of type 1 diabetes, we know that even outside of type 1 diabetes, we know that insulin levels have an important role in, in macrovascular uh, disease or complications, at least it's resistance and elevation. In type 1 diabetes, you are hypersaturating these peripheral tissues by default based on the route of administration. You also typically, in people with type 1 diabetes, have blood sugar levels that are averaging around 180 milligrams per deciliter on average, with a standard deviation around 60 around that mean. So 120 total uh, uh, deviation around the mean. Those are profound glucose levels and also uh, uh, risks related to insulin and then how it's administered. And so as Philip, you said, that does bring up an important question about diet. Diet is, at least carbohydrates specifically, are the most potent postprandial hyperglycemic factor in type 1 diabetes. Insulin is the most potent hypoglycemic agent. Now, Jack, you, you, tw you twitch for a second. You, you got I, a I'm just trying to work through postprandial something. And I think what okay. that means is what happens after you eat. But I kind of yes. nailed it, Jack. So Jack's on top of it. So <laughs> if I go eat a meal right afterwards, they use these fancy terms in medicine, you know, postprandial. So you ate a meal. So at, right after the meal, uh, is this window of time where uh, in type 1 diabetes, the most potent factor for elevated glucose levels after meal is carbohydrates. Okay. Um, there is no other factor as powerful as that. Now, exercise comes close in some scenarios, especially if you have a really profound stressful exercise bout with high intensity and you can get some glucose levels quickly. Um, but on a reliable day-by-day -day basis, carbohydrates are king in that category. So when we talk about the 40 factors in type 1 diabetes or plus, you know, you could really come up with an endless list here. Um, you can you can attempt to address all of them, but that would be ex extremely difficult. And a more effective manner is to think, how do I address the most potent factors in managing my disease? And so that brings up a conversation around carbohydrates, which is very controversial in type 1 diabetes. The idea that you get a disease, it's not your choice. And then you have to consider this idea, this controversial idea of should you eat more or less carbohydrates to manage your disease? And I will say as a precedence, a lot of the recommendations have historically been to eat and bolus with insulin in order to correct for the amount of carbohydrates you consume. But even with those strategies, even with the most advanced tools like closed loop systems. So Jack, a closed loop system is when you actually have a CGM on your body you also have an insulin pump and your and it uh, has a cannula inserted into your fat tissue and these systems work together to automatically use advanced computer algorithms to automatically administer insulin in response to the food you eat those tools when utilized in patients 
still only get patients to about 155 to 175 is the average uh, milligrams per deciliter outcomes across these major trials. And HbA1Cs don't move even a whole absolute unit percentage point. So these tools aren't fixing the problem. And it introduces a question of what else should we add to the mix? What other options are potentially available to address that? And we know that there is a number of observational analysis, short-term randomized controlled trials, although there's no randomized controlled trial over seven days uh, in this category, but very low carbohydrate diets is, is a topic that is has been brought up and uh, something that I'm actively exploring and studying right now in type 1 diabetes. Um, you said HbA1c. That's the thing that says what you're basically a marker of inflammation in the body, correct? So HbA1c is a, as a, as a proxy for total glucose exposure over a two to three month period of time. So at least it's used as that. When it was originally discovered, I believe it was in Iran that was originally discovered. They actually found that a subset of patients with diabetes actually had elevated, uh, um, they use these Western blots, but I won't get too detailed. In essence, it was discovered to find that glucose actually sticks to certain tissues in the body. And as it goes higher and higher and higher, more of it is sticking to tissues. Well, they found that it actually sticks to red blood cells uh, at the A1C subunit. So they call it hemoglobin A1C. So the higher that hemoglobin has in its, its uh, how many glucose molecules are bound to the A1C unit of the hemoglobin in your blood, the more glucose you've been exposed to over a two to three month period. So they really use it as a long-term metric for total glucose uh, exposure. And keep in mind, you know, we didn't have CGMs, at least reliably across the use in type one diabetes, you know, even up to like, a, a, you have to go past a decade. Uh, within this decade is when you started seeing an uptick in these use. But before that, you didn't have things like that. You had single finger stick meter use. And then you try to make some assumptions around what your finger stick meter use is and what maybe your glucose is doing on a regular day. But if you look at someone's CGM tracing, you can just, your listeners can just Google type one diabetes, CGM tracing. And you can look at the variability that you will see from even 30 minutes, we need 30 minutes blocks. I mean, we're talking, they could swing 50 to hundred milligrams per deciliter. And you wouldn't detect that on a single use meter. You know, you right, right before you eat your meal. And then three hours later, you might've, you might've went up to like 300 and come back down but you still went up to 300, right? So it might think, oh, I had great control. I had normal and then normal pre and post my meal. But what you're missing is that it might've went up to 300 plus uh, in the meantime. And that's something you don't wanna see happen on a regular basis. Uh, at least it, the data suggests that that's not ideal uh, for tissues um, and uh, elevated and variable glucose levels can certainly cause damage uh, to a number of tissues within the body. Okay. I, I you know, every time I get a get a blood test done, and I am not diabetic, um, they're still checking my A1C. Yep. And that is because? They want to know, Jack, if you're at risk for or currently have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, or potentially you might have something in the case of type 1, which is adult onset, late adult onset diabetes called LADA. And um, basically, they're trying to determine, are you potentially at risk for becoming Andrew or a patient with type 2 diabetes? Um, because if left undetected, it certainly has a number of uh, risk associated with leaving undetected glucose levels um, uncontrolled. In fact, to not to get on too much of a tangent, a side tangent. Well, we here, like but, the nerdy stuff here. We're, okay, we're, we're we'll, okay. 
let's go for that. So when we talk about things like prediabetes, okay, or type two diabetes, the incidence of these are going up clearly, uh, but the incidence of people, if you were to look at even CDC data and NHANES data up to a decade ago, in fact, let's look at NHANES data collected in, in well, at, from 2011 to 2014, that data set in NHANES when they reported on it, showed that people with prediabetes or type two diabetes combined from 12 years of age all the way to end of life. That, so we're talking almost the entire spectrum of life uh, for most human beings. Uh, that 41% of all patients have either have dysglycemia, so either prediabetes or type two diabetes. That's that's a decade ago. That's half the population. The incidence of undetected diabetes within that cohort, so in, undetected dysglycemia, was you know depends on if you're looking at NHANES data or CDC data or what report you're looking at. These range anywhere from a third to up to a a, a half of patients. Uh, could, well, actually, a fourth to a third, sorry, a fourth to a third of all patients could have undetected dysglycemia. Now, when you're talking about prediabetes, which is prior to type 2, so not in my scenario with type 1, but someone who might be building up changes in their metabolism over time that's putting them at risk for having insulin resistance and elevated glucose levels, the type 2 uh, that Philip referred to distinguishing type 1 and type 2. We know that even the CDC, uh, you, you go online right now, you type in prediabetes undetected in CDC search, you'll actually see that they report that up to 80% of people do not know they have prediabetes and, and they actually have uh, uh, dysglycemia. And that's based on actual data. And it's not like, hey, we're guessing these numbers. That's actually real data. So um, that's concerning because as someone who lives with type 1 and knows how up uh, the upswings, the variability in glucose, the elevation in glucose, and the uh, hypoglycemia as well, though it's not as common in type 2, um, I, it's, it definitely affects you. Uh, it affects the way you feel. It affects the way you perform. Um, it has implications. And uh, it, not knowing that's happening to you on a regular basis uh, it can build up over time. And eventually, you might get a full diagnosis of type 2 that might be hard to reverse. Um, at least it certainly would be harder to do so once it's fully embedded and you're fully diagnosed with that disease. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, the statistics might be even worse than that, uh, probably are even worse than that, because, um, you know, you could certainly make the argument that even a uh, A1C um, is really an inadequate way of, uh, you know, measuring prediabetes or insulin resistance, which is really uh, you know, what we're trying to get at. Um, I want to circle back, though, a little bit to, uh, you know, the uh, sort of mentioning, talking about the dietary management of type 1 yeah. diabetes. And, you know, really, uh, I, I think it would be important to point out that, um, you know, Dr. Bernstein's work, uh, which really was in the, I want to, mostly in the 80s, pre-CGM, uh, or at least widespread CGM use, and, you know, he kind of, I would say, is the modern day uh, proponent of these low carbohydrate diets for type 1 diabetes. And, you know, what he basically figured out was um, if you put less carbohydrates into the system, you're going to have better overall control. And, you know, besides the um, avoiding the hyperglycemia, the high blood sugar, um, the other advantage is that, that you can also better avoid the hypoglycemia, the low blood sugar, 
And in the short term, the low blood sugar is more of a life-threatening problem uh, than the high blood sugar is for type 1 diabetics. Correct. And, and so, Phil, to your point, if you actually, so we actually are in the process of conducting uh, the largest analysis of carbohydrate or actually diet impacts in type 1 diabetes biomarker outcomes. And if you look at the oldest report uh, in this category, uh, Bernstein's is one of them. Uh, so his initial report was his own case report uh, and showed a, H, a euglycemic HbA1c. So um, what does that mean? It means a normal glucose value in type 1 diabetes. Looking at um, large data sets from some of the best institutions in the United States through something called the Type 1 Diabetes Exchange, a large data set pulled from the best institutions that have all partnered together to collect a high valuable data in type 1 diabetes. That data set shows that less than 1% of patients are actually achieving normal glycemia with type 1 diabetes, meaning that 99% of patients with type 1 diabetes have dysglycemia. They're not achieving normal uh, uh, metabolic function. Well, they're definitely not normal metabolic function, but not achieving normal glucose values, i.e. normal glycemia. And Bernstein, I believe, might have been one of the first reports ever, if not the first report case report to actually show normal glycemia in type 1 diabetes, in a confirmed patient with type 1 diabetes. Um, and he uses uh, his, his book on it called Diabetes Solutions, which pr uh, promotes the idea of lowering carbohydrates um, and keeping a protein-focused diet and allowing fat to be used as energy um, as needed, uh, not to be used in excess, but just as needed. And he reported his ability to achieve normal glucose control. And now that book has become one of the biggest and also, frankly, one of the most controversial topics over the last decade in type 1 diabetes. Um, but on the backdrop of that book, there's a group called Type 1 Grit that uh, has largely most of its members follow um, that approach. And uh, that approach isn't just, by the way, lowering carbohydrates. That approach is also changing the insulin profiles to uh, now match different food kinetics. Because when you look at curves of glucose-induced changes in glycemic in the body, it isn't just carbs that raise blood glucose levels in the body. Those are the most potent. Let's say you have 50 grams of carbs from a potato. You know, let's say it, it, for your users, that's, it, let's say you, you go up 10 absolute units, just arbitrary, right? So 10. Well, if you have protein, 50 grams of protein, you only have about four, four absolute units. So it's only about 40% of what carbohydrates do, but it still elevates glucose, but it's more prolonged and delayed. But here's the thing. In type 1 diabetes, the less magnitudes, the less the slower the rise, and the, the less of a rise, so the, the, the pace of the rise and how high it actually goes, are both much easier to manage for most people if they're slower and not as high. And so if you remove things like carbohydrates, there have been reports, um, actually some pretty impactful reports out of Boston Children's Harvard Med and Duke and a, and a few other researchers who came and observed uh, a community I'm a part of, which is called Type 1 Grit. Um, and this was 316 patients. I think it was 46, anywhere between 40 and 50% of them were actually kids, so pediatric patients. And the mean outcome for patients at, uh, sticking to this Bernstein approach or this very low carbohydrate diet, uh, where actually the average HbA1c across all these patients was 5.67. Now, to give an illustration which, of what- Which means- Yeah, so normal glycemia is less than 5.7. So that- so they were normal. The average HbA1c, if you were to mean, so average the entire group, the average of the entire group was normal glucose. 
And to say, some people may not realize, especially outside the type 1 diabetes community, may not realize how big of a deal that is. There is no technology. There is no medication currently available to patients that every patient has access to right now that does that. There is no closed loop, no CGM. Um, there is, there's no medication right now that does that. Even beta cell transplant theory or islet cell transplant, where you're literally reinserting the damaged cells that are gone. Over time, most of these reports have shown that most patients go back up in their HbA1c over time. Their beta cells don't last forever. They actually end up weaning over time, so uh, dying off. They're on immunosuppressants the entire time. Oftentimes, it requires an immunosuppressant uh, chronically for the rest of your life. Um, and most patients end up getting back on insulin. So if these technologies are getting better, one day that'll probably end up being the uh, functional cure for type 1 diabetes if, if it ever gets to that point. Although I've been warned it might not be coming for a long period of time. We are a pretty far ways away from understanding enough about this problem and the immune system to really correct it. But you never know. Things 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 can turn a corner quickly in, in science and, and, and take off. But uh, nonetheless, when we get back to diet and we talk about diet and, and the implications of type 1 diabetes, there are reports, observational reports, at least showing that patients are able to achieve on average uh, normal glucose control with very low carbohydrate diets. And having looked at every single study ever reported using carbohydrates in a confirmed type 1 diabetes population and looking at actual outcomes, hopefully uh, there'll be an opportunity to come back and speak to you guys about that when it's officially published. But I can suffice it to say that those results illustrate that this is not an uncommon phenomenon. Um, it, it's not uncommon that paper in pediatrics published, I believe, in 2018 uh, was one of the most viewed papers. It was the most viewed paper in pediatric that year. That's the publication journal it came out in. There's also a New York Times article that came out about it uh, and was the most emailed New York Times article of the year that year. So there's a huge amount of interest that came out about this because it's just not observed. Again, less than 1% of patients are seeing this, uh, these values and uh, to, to to show that it's possible is a very big deal. Um, and, you know, that's the goal. I think my goal as someone who researches type 1 diabetes, diabetes in general and obesity and, and metabolic health and, and from a nutrition focus, um, my goal for, for the world of type 1 diabetes as a patient as well, as an advocate for this community, is to have normal glycemia. You know, it doesn't have to be. I'm not, I'm not a... a I'm not beholden to any one diet. It isn't the, the make-all, break-all, low-carbohydrate, ketogenic diet is the fix-all for everything. We're talking about just things that work. You know, we just want solutions that work. Um, and at the end of the day, there is illustrations that diet appears to be one of the most reliable, evidence-based ways to achieve normal glycemia and type 1 diabetes, uh, if that is your end target. And I do believe the goal for me, in my mind, is that every patient uh, with type 1 diabetes will eventually have zero complications and normal glycemia. We're clearly not there yet. And I'm not uh, uh, preaching here, per se, to say I have the solution that fixes to all these issues. But I will say that there are solutions that are being illustrated to patients right now that I, I think are important to talk about, i.e. things like these uh, dietary strategies that could be used not only in isolation, but also in, in tandem with other tools, uh, such as closed loop systems or other other medications and technologies that can help improve the quality of life of patients living with this disease. Because again, diet's not a cure for this problem. Medication's not a cure for this problem. And technology's not a cure for this disease. We are living this disease regardless. It's about managing it the best we can every single day and reducing the burden of it 
while also achieving the highest quality of life possible. And that's my goal for all patients is to get to that point uh, in, in whatever way they can. That's a good yeah, speech. Very, yeah, very well said. And, you know, just to reinforce that point, uh, I mean, you know, most endocrinologists uh, working with type 1 diabetics, their goal is to keep the hemoglobin A1C under 7. Uh, and if, you know, you get it under six and a half, they're, they're thrilled. And here we are talking about, uh, you know, decent size group of type one diabetics, uh, that like you said, achieved on average normal blood glucose levels with an A1C under 5.7. So, uh, really, uh, pretty amazing. Um, I, I do want to pivot for, uh, now and, and talk about, you know, your other area of research. Uh, which is certainly related, uh, and that's, you know, the many different aspects of ketones and, um, you know, the different uh, ways that ketones can be important. Uh, and, you know, you've talked about, you've researched this in a number of areas, including athletic performance and, and uh, management of, uh, you know, medical conditions. Uh, so let's, let's maybe start with a little bit of the basics of, you know, circle back to what ketones are and what they yeah. do in our bodies. Sure. So ketone bodies are uh, a byproduct of fat metabolism. So the way ketones were original, they weren't originally discovered in this way, but the, re the reason they became so important in, in the world of, let's say, uh, metabolism is because uh, some time ago, um, it was, well, let me back up even further. So in type 1 diabetes, it was known that elevation of ketone bodies were causing elevation in acid load and ultimately causing patients to die. It wasn't until, and that was pre-1920, so we, we knew that. Um, it wasn't until 1950s, 60s, and 70s uh, that it was actually discovered that your body could not reliably, well, under a prolonged fast, a gentleman named George Kale, I'm sure you, your listeners have heard of this man before, uh, found that when someone undergoes a very long fast, uh, in the absence of all food, and, and along with the absence of food is the absence of carbohydrates. There is a dramatic dropping insulin that happens almost immediately, and that prolong that 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 level of insulin is important as a kind of almost thresholding effect. Once it becomes low enough, you start seeing elevations in fat oxidation to compensate for lower insulin. When insulin is very high, the body is often using not exclusively but a a, a lot more glucose as a substrate or an energy to fuel the body. But when insulin is very low, the body has to pivot. It has to shift its energy use uh, and it shifts it uh, towards fat oxidation um, because in the absence of, of nutrients or in the absence of food, our body has have a, a unbelievable ability to store fat. <laughs> I'm sure most people have either experienced this personally, I have when I was obese, but the body is very good biologically at storing fat and in the absence of food, because we were ultimately biological beings that went through feast and famine, in order to survive through famine, uh, they built, the fat stores were ultimately mobilized when insulin was low. So insulin was the trigger. Glucose goes low. That low glucose lowers insulin requirements, so less release of insulin. And the insulin lowering effect is what triggers the cascade of events that happen after that. And those cascade of events ultimately mean elevated fat oxidation. And then ultimately, reducing insulin lowers these blockades on the, this process called ketogenesis in the liver. 
And when you lower the blockades by lowering insulin, ketones are produced at higher and higher levels proportional to the lowering of insulin. And uh, as ketones go up, uh, in this case, uh, in this George Cahill study, it was found that uh, ketones were actually an important fuel substrate for the brain. Uh, and it appears that it's one of the predominant, if not main substrates during fasting, up to 60% of brain energy metabolism. So uh, we know that in summary, Phil, that these are important substrates under famine, but there's been an emergence of, of literature outside of that in the context of ketogenic diets or exogenous ketone bodies, um, ultimately because uh, these molecules just don't appear to be uh, you know, life-saving uh, metabolites in the context of a famine. Uh, they appear to have some health benefits related to them uh, that might be important to talk about. Yeah, and, you know, certainly some of those health benefits, uh, I would say probably the two areas that, you know, have best been demonstrated thus far are in the brain and dealing with neurologic conditions and in the heart uh, dealing with... Uh, cardiac conditions, specifically heart failure, uh, that it seems that ketones may have a, a unique benefit. Um, one of the controversial areas, I guess, in all of this uh, that, you know, uh, I, I think gets discussed a lot, maybe on social media particularly, is, you know, does our body actually prefer ketones? You know, are ketones the preferred fuel source for our body overall? or for particular organs, you know, like the brain and the heart. Uh, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. So I'm going to give you both sides of the argument. So one argument is that when you're fasting or on a ketogenic diet, the absence of fat elevates ketone bodies. But the second you reintroduce carbohydrates, ketones go lower and your body immediately shifts back to, uh, at least in most scenarios, back to glucose predominant metabolism. So that's the argument for why glucose might be the fuels sort of preferred fuel substrate. But the counter argument to that is actually uh, evidence that has looked at directly infusing ketone bodies uh, into uh, human beings and actually have illustrated some from uh, uh, Stephen Kunane, illustrating that the higher the ketone bodies were in the serum were proportional to the, the amount of ketones that were metabolized in the brain. So it seemed to be a dose response, which is not what you necessarily observe with glucose. Um, and so that illustrated that there's a possibility that when you actually directly assess whether ketones are preferred, you know, if you provide more of them, are they just uh, preferably metabolized? It appears that they might be in the brain, according to George Cahill's evidence. So that's the two sides of the argument here. Is it, it, And I think there is an unbelievable amount of nuance because I do think ketones could be a preferred for, preferred fuel substrate in certain tissues, maybe most of the time. But there also are specific contexts where they might be prefer preferred, maybe in low insulin environments uh, or in different contexts where there might be metabolic derangement, uh, such as George Cahill and others, not George Cahill, but Stephen Kunane and others have also illustrated in the context of, let's say, uh, brain energy deficits. Uh, we've also done some work in, in hypoxia looking at the uh, use of it, uh, again, in a brain energy deficit scenario. And it, it, as Phil, to your point, it does appear that these are really powerful molecules in the brain. And, and that might be one of the tissues based on some of Stephen Kunane's data that illustrates it might be a preferred, preferred fuel. But again, there's, there's a counter argument that's le legitimately good, which is if you just reintroduce carbs, then you, you shift back to some glucose. Um, but if you provide carbohydrates and ketones together, uh, what happens then? And, and you know, 
Stephen Kadane got at some of those questions in the brain, but it's an open question uh, to be answered uh, in other tissue systems. So the jury is really out on that, although there's some pretty strong opinions on it uh, as it stands right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess one of the other, you know, maybe the counter argument to the counter argument is, um, you know, there's also a toxicity issue here. So, you know, we can look at alcohol, for instance, and, you know, if you put alcohol into the system, that's going to get burned preferentially um, because the body's trying to get rid of it. It is toxic. Uh, glucose, we know at, you know, high levels is toxic as well. And, you know, so the reason perhaps that we shift to burning glucose when you put more glucose into the system is because we need to get rid of the glucose uh, and try and uh, avoid the toxicity that comes with high blood glucose levels. And that, that's a reasonable hypothesis. We So we've written on this in a, a publication, a review publication on some of our prior work um, in Frontiers Physiology in a recent publication that came out on this. Uh, about the possibility of what are some of the uh, homeostatic reasons why glucose is actually potentially highly oxidized, even in some prior data at rest. So it's often believed there's this, an exercise physiology, because I was an exercise physiologist at Florida State, went on to study biomedical sciences at the College of Medicine at University of South Florida. And so I've been on both sides, the applied physiology side and the deep down uh, nitty gritty of biomedical sciences. And in exercise phys specifically though, there's this concept called the crossover effect that at, at, at very low intensity or at rest, your body is used a lot, utilizing a lot of fat um, and very low carbohydrates. And as you increase your exercise intensity up into very uh, 100% of your VO2 max or maximal oxygen consumption, um, that you start using more carbohydrates and less fat. But we have seen there's prior literature that actually illustrates in many individuals even at low rest or even at low intensity exercise, the carbohydrates are actually being oxidized much more than we think. And uh, at least it's been historically presented in this crossover paradigm in exercise fizz, which opens up that, that topic, Phil, is, is, is there, what is the mechanism driving high levels of glucose oxidation, even at low intensity exercise, or even at potentially rest? Um, and that's one of the theories that one of the theories is that you're trying to bring glucose in the blood into homeostatic levels, because it is one of the last things to go, um, in patients, uh, not in all scenarios, but in many scenarios, like in a famine, the last thing to go that cause the patient to actually die is, is actually, uh, low glucose hypoglycemia. Um, so that is one of the most sustained, critically important, uh, things to maintain the body in homeostasis, because when it gets deranged, obviously in high levels, you get disease complications and, and the damage to multiple cell cell and tissues. On the low end, if it's low enough, it can actually be fatal. Uh, and, and, in, and as often the case in patients with type 1 diabetes, there are, uh, unfortunately, a scenario where patients over-inject insulin, go hypoglycemia, and they, and they can't die. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think maybe a sort of, uh, you know, unifying sort of uh, factor here is, you know, our bodies evolved these different mechanisms to survive periods of energy deficit. And we've now created an environment where we have an excess of energy uh, that kind of can break all of these systems, uh, you know, and seems to be the unifying problem. Uh, on top of maybe some, you know, uniquely, uh, let's say, energy toxic or metabolic toxic uh, components of the foods that we are eating in modern times that, you know, we were not introduced to 
uh, were, were not present uh, while we were uh, evolving. Absolutely. And the, the food environment is certainly a very hot topic in obesity. You know, when we talk about metabolic dysfunction or issues related to metabolism, you look no further than the, the incidence of individuals who are overweight and obese and, and find that that's north of 85% at this point in the United States. So some make the argument that, you know, the vast majority of the population and some of the stats I provided earlier about prediabetes and type 2 diabetes does illustrate that about half, if not way more than that, have metabolic dysfunction to a degree. Uh, and then some people much more than that. Uh, and the food environment is certainly one to be a contributor blamer uh, or blamer not, to be blamed in contribution to these problems for sure. Um, you know, in, in olden times, you know, you didn't have hyper palatable food options. You didn't have um, kind of foods that would allow you to eat endlessly uh, and have these am amazing sensation. Uh, you can sit down forever and just feel great after every single bite. Uh, but get very little in return as far as satiation um, or maybe even micronutrient or even um, um, uh, some of the important aspects of why we were eating in the first place, why we have these circuitries in the brain that drive us to eat uh, and have the reward systems is so that we make sure that we're nourished. And as you point out, we're we're, we're certainly well beyond the nourished state at this point. And, and people are actually developing reverse uh, approaches to, to, I guess, unhack, so to speak, this, this, uh, environment, or I guess, hack our way out of this environment that we're currently in. And a lot of that's just kind of going back to the basics. Uh, at least some of those approaches are, uh, as attempting to, to get away from where we're at now. And you have like tools, like, for example, like Ozempic and some of the other drugs, I mean, that at, at its core, you know, they do a lot of things, but they're trying to literally, uh, reverse some of the major problems that food environment has created. Um, and, and it's powerful. The food is a very, very powerful thing, both and and driving uh, uh, dysfunction and poor health, but also can be a very, very powerful tool in getting it as well, uh, getting great health and, and improving metabolism uh, as, as many patients with disease, if they've done so, often talk about, or you go to YouTube, and you can find many people preaching about the impact that food can have for them. So it, it's, it goes both ways. You know, one other uh, very interesting um, aspect of ketones that you've published on that I, I wanted to touch on was their role uh, or their possible role in uh, the immune system. Yeah, it, so ketone bodies. So so we've published on a kind of a few things. We published on uh, cancer, body weight regulation, sports performance. We've done a few human trials in that. Uh, we've recently looked at things like hypoxia. Um, in other environments. But ketone bodies do appear to have an interesting role uh, in the immune system as well, and, and the potentially to actually fuel certain immune cells versus, versus others. So there's some work actually um, out of our lab by someone named uh, Shannon Kessel, uh, who worked with Dominate Diostino. So that's where I got my PhD. And um, one great example of this uh, is that she did a wound healing uh, model. So she actually looked at uh, animals that had ischemic wounds, so uh, wounds without a lot of blood flow. And one of the ways you believe you would respond to a open wound or a sore is actually by uh, having the immune response that ultimately provides blood flow, nutrients, and ultimately healing to these, these tissues. And the, her data has illustrated that by exogenously administering ketone bodies that they were able to expedite the healing time um, for these animals. But there's also evidence to direct cell effects uh, on the immune systems. We know that these molecules directly change certain processes related to uh, inflammation, epigenetics, oxidative stress. Uh, so those processes are not 
particularly exclusive to one particular tissue per se. So the epigenetic effects is, appear to happen over multiple tissues and multiple potential cell systems. And so, um, you know, it, there's a lot to that uh, and a lot of potential areas to explore, but honestly, a lot of that work. So, so Philip, to give a, a, a kind of a caveat to a lot of this work at present, a lot of it has shown some really remarkable stuff in cells and also in uh, rodent model systems, so mice or, or rats. Uh, but we're only just now getting to the point where we're starting to see randomized controlled trials and things like dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, um, and, and other environments for spe specifically for ketone bodies. Now, the ketogenic diet has, has, has obviously superseded this by 100 years, but things like the ketone uh, exogenous administration has really blown up over the last decade simply because of the ability for these emergent tools called exogenous ketone bodies to actually just be orally consumed and elevate ketone bodies to levels that you'd only achieve by fasting for one or two weeks. When I was stalking you to find out who you were in preparation for you being on the show. Very normal, Jack. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I ran across a couple of articles that you authored or were contributing to. Uh, one of them, uh, actually, a, a lot of articles. But there were a couple of uh, topics that really caught my eye. One, of course, was the exogenous ketones. Um, and you touched on how they might relate to athletic performance. Um, and the other one that caught my eye was, uh, I think of it as cold plunges, but I may I may be doing this. Uh, cold therapy? is. It, I don't want to take us way down a rabbit trail, but that well, caught uh, my eye uh so so uh, we have actually so i've never i have not done uh what i call cryotherapy before so i haven't studied that before but i have studied ketones in the athletic context uh, in, in a number of scenarios because there's in 2016 there was a very large um study that came out from oxford from kieran clark's group that showed that exogenous ketone bodies when administered in elite level rowers was able to overwhelmingly shift metabolism so you could see by just administering ketone bodies from orally without changing a diet without doing any dietary change you just administer these molecules that their metabolic makeup so to speak was completely changed uh, very rapidly so that really opened a lot of people's eyes but what opened even more people's eyes is that they actually performed better by about two percent uh, when administering these molecules versus just standard carbohydrate consumption is so that, that is that because of they they just better endurance so they did a, a time trial um where they were able to see you know how far fast these individuals were able to go and within that context they improved two percent they hypothesized this was related to allowing for ketones to be a substrate throughout performance and allowed for glycogen or glucose to be spared for uh, later on in the athletic endeavor. At least that was a, a prevailing hypothesis at the time. And that's not new to athletic context. You know, there's been a theory for 30, 40 years, maybe more um, that I'm aware of, but there might have gone even further back, that not just providing glucose per se as a fuel, but having all fuel systems administered and, and utilized by the body to maximize uh, en available energy during athletic performance. You know, it, when people think about running, they may think, okay, if I sprint, I'm just using uh, carbohydrates. 
When the truth is you're kind of using a little bit of every substrate at each point. You're just using proportionally more fat when you're at rest or low intensity, proportionally more carbs when you're at higher intensity, so to speak. So there's always a little bit more nuance to that, that conversation, but they thought that when exogenously administering ketone bodies in elite level rowers, that the performance advantage might have been due to the fact that ketones were being utilized as a fuel substrate and then sparing carbohydrates and glycogen for when it was needed for later on in the performance bout. Now, since that point, there have been a number of studies that have come out showing positive and or sometimes negative effects, just depends on what context. But there's some nuance that has to be uncovered there. There are a number of different forms of exogenous ketone bodies, not just one. That study I'm referring to, published in Cell Metabolism in 2016, called uh, first authored by uh, uh, Peter Cox, um, that was using a ketone monoester, which is 1,3-butanediol attached to a, a ketone molecule. When it goes in the body, it breaks apart. Ketones directly elevate, uh, go direct in the circulation, elevate. And then 1,3-butanediol, that goes to the liver, is converted into ketones. So you have a, a two ketones for every mole of molecule, so to speak. Uh, now, there are ketone salts, which is a ion or a, in this context, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium attached to ketone bodies. You also have other forms of exogenous ketones, uh, although I don't know if everyone considers them this, but like MCTs, medium chain triglycerides. So those are in breast milk, those are in fats like butter and coconut. Um, and uh, people have actually created now different forms of medium chain triglycerides that are bound to one another to maximize the amount of MCTs administered into the body. And you'll probably see more and more of this as time goes on, more optimized formulations for different purposes. But nonetheless, it is important to appreciate that there is a number of different molecules that do different things, different portions of ketone elevations, uh, different changes in things like uh, acid base balance, all these things matter. And people often ignore that. They just look at the ketone level elevation and think, that's what I need to focus on uh, because higher is better. Well, apologies for a second. That isn't always the case. Sometimes it's about getting the right ketone elevation by also buffering things like, let's say, acid load. Because ketone bodies have a mild acidic component to them, which in some cases might be a good thing. But in other cases, might actually have impairments or subtle impairments to aspects of physiology. We've actually seen that administering ketone bodies and actually inhibiting the uh, uh, elevation in acid load can actually potentially augment the level of ketone bodies. So there's so much whoa, to be uncovered. Slow, slow down there. One more time. Yep. So when you administer exogenous ketone bodies, like, for example, ketone esters, those mm -hmm. molecules, when you consume them, Again, we talked about before why in type 1 diabetes, ketones got a bad rap because they have hydronines that cause a, a mild acidity in the body. Um, now, your body handles that by bicarbonate and immediately kind of buffers it out. But in the context of exogenous ketone bodies, if you would rapidly consume them and get up to fasting levels of ketone bodies within 15, 30 minutes, that rapid elevation in ketone bodies comes with an acid load oftentimes. With you so, so that, far. So that acid load... Um, can cause a subtle drop in pH. And that subtle drop in pH can cause called, cause sometimes to reach the threshold called metabolic acidosis, which isn't necessarily per se harmful, but it's something that's often ignored when you talk about administering exogenous ketone bodies. And we have found that if you're actually able to manipulate the acidity of it by giving bicarbonate or giving other forms of ketone bodies that don't have the acidic component, not only can you regulate 
the, the concentration of ketone bodies by changing acidity, but you can also change other aspects of physiology, um, such as blood gases, acid-based balance, and specifically in unique scenarios like hypoxia, uh, where the, uh, why acid might be important, um, where in other scenarios you would want to potentially, for example, athletic performance, you might want to block or blunt the amount of acidity in the body. Um, and to give an example of why that might be important, bicarbonate is a well-known uh, sports ergogenic agent. Uh, at least it appears to be in a number of studies, not maybe universally, but bicarbonate by blunting acid load related things like lactic acid from exercise can actually potentially help performance in some studies. So uh, the idea of blunting acid load is not a new concept, but there are a number of studies showing either marginal improvements in performance, uh, either subtle decreases. And a lot of this across, we published a paper in Sports Metabolism. First author is Mark Evans, worked it with Brendan Eakin, also Tyler McClure in Dublin. And when you look at the body of the evidence right now, it really illustrates this kind of a neutral effect. You know, when you compare ketone bodies to the gold standard, just pure carbohydrates in sports performance in healthy individuals, it appears that it just, it, the average is it's kind of the same, you know, but it doesn't necessarily make things worse per se on average, right? So you could administer ketone bodies as a fuel substrate. It isn't necessarily making you worse, but the alternative choice is carbohydrates, right? You're administering a ton of those. You know, is that is that what you want to administer? Is that optimal for this person in their scenario? So it just illustrates that it, it appears to not be a negative thing, right? But when you start looking at literature over prolonged periods of time, when people are not just taking the ketone body one time, because in exercise physiology studies, Jack, a lot of these studies, they just administer the molecule one time before performance and say, is it good or is it bad? You know, like caffeine. You take caffeine before you go run outside, are you faster? And a lot of studies, it says, sure. Now, a lot of these studies I'm referring to about exogenous ketone bodies, it's a one-time bolus. You take it one time before exercise, are you better or worse? Some studies say yes, some studies say no. But when you look at the studies that have started to emerge over patients with things like Parkinson's, so Nick Norwick's uh, has actually published some work when he was at Oxford getting his PhD, showing that in Parkinson's patients, you could see much larger improvements, north of 20%, depending on what metric you're looking at, in actual sports performance and disease populations administering his allergens ketone bodies. Specifically, he was looking at Parkinson's. And that's in disease. That's differentiating from just healthy individuals who get away with a lot more. But what mm -hmm. happens if you actually have a disease? Well, there's other studies from uh, Peter Hespel's group that have shown if you exo administer exogenous ketone bodies over not just days, but weeks post-exercise, that those individuals that administer exogenous ketone bodies appear to actually have better recovery and were able to mitigate uh, overreaching um, protocol. So in sports, oh. individuals attempt to push themselves harder and harder and harder. The idea is that you push your, you actually, you, you exercise hard, your body adapts to it, your the, your body compensates, you get stronger, you do it again, you repeat it. But there's a point at which you start to drop off or plateau those benefits. And so what this appeared to show is that if you have a very hard overreaching protocol, that if you administer exogenous ketone bodies over a prolonged period of time, so daily administration of this post-exercise, that those who administered the molecule perform better. They also had uh, similar studies showing that over a prolonged period of time, there was increased vasculature and angiogenesis that was quite marked. Um, and that seems to line up with okay, some of the Okay, that sounds super interesting. Please put that into English. Sure. So when we talk about angiogenesis or things like... Uh, well, so 
angiogenesis is the process of creating new blood vessels. Okay. Right. And in the body, if you're if you're increasing, if you're administering exogenous ketone bodies, and that may potentially lead to, or any therapy that potentially leads to increased angiogenesis, you would in think in theory that this could maybe improve the tissues with more vasculature to it. In this case, it was muscle. So that could have profound effects. I mean, they were showing if changes in angiogenesis up to like 30, 40%. I mean, that's crazy. Um, there was also work with exogenous ketone bodies showing short-term elevations in EPO, erythropoietin. And that seems to line up with some of these changes we're seeing in vasculature uh, as well. Although angiogenesis is slightly different than EPO, but these things are all appear to be adding together a bigger picture that there's more to these molecules than just a fuel substrate. These molecules appear to do other things in the body and they appear to maybe potentially have effects if they're not just administered in the short term, but potentially over a long term. Wow. Okay. So um, to summarize what I've gotten out of this so far, uh, first of all, you have a remarkable mind for recalling names and dates on studies. I don't know how you do that. Uh, but I guess in your business, it's a good thing to have. Sometimes um, it helps, yeah. Um, but type 1 diabetics, uh, it sounds like, in summary, um, the appropriate diet is proves to be significantly more effective at controlling and managing. Uh, I'm definitely putting in this into fifth grade English here. Uh, your a1c levels um which is i guess how much blood how much sugar you've got in your how much glucose you've got in your blood all the time much better than any other technology uh any combination of technologies we're not 100 percent sure why but we've got pretty definitive evidence that it's way better than any external uh treatment Right now, it appears that, although I will say, I want to uh, caveat that statement and say- well, Of course we, you do. He's a scientist, course, right? folks. Yeah. He has uh, to give it a- Of course, Jack, I have to, right? Um, so th largely, that's the point, right? Is that there, that diet is an unbelievably powerful factor. In type 1 diabetes, where 99% of the population is not getting normal glucose control, uh, with the king biomarker being HbA1c, if there's something that could markedly improve that- and it might, if it's diet, and it, that seems to be an important factor. And there's 17 published studies so far in type 1 IBs on very low carbohydrate diet, and 14 out of those have illustrated the ability to achieve normal glycemia. That is an unbelievably important uh, finding. But again, I did mention this is the, the caveat I'm going to throw out there when we say it's very well tested. Well, we know it's it's achievable. What we do know right now, it is achievable in patients. Uh, there's a number of reports this far. I think we have about 400 participants in the, the over those 17 studies in very low carbohydrate and type 1 diabetes group um, with the mean outcome being uh, less than 5.7% HbA1c. But what people want to see, the reason it's not a part of, there's no there's no guidelines for very low carbohydrate diets and type 1 diabetes. Those, those things don't exist. The reason they don't exist right now uh, could be uh, multifactorial, but one of the biggest reasons they don't exist is because we don't have very long-term randomized controlled trials. Now, I'm a patient with type 1 diabetes, and if I was a healthcare professional, so you guys might be unique in your situation 
and, and your ability to, to talk about unique and diverse topics and be a little more outspoken. But, you know, a lot of other people are looking at guidelines and, and go into a, a doctor's office and think, I got to provide the best care I can to this patient within the rules that I'm given, right? And so a lot of times the, those rules are written out verbatim in standard of care guidelines. And very low carbohydrate diets are not in standard of care guidelines because of the absence of these long-term randomized controlled trials. But at the end of the day, if you go on Google Trends right now and look at, you type in type 1 diabetes. So there's a metric of global interest because the amount of people who are actually going and searching things like, uh, uh, like say, medications or tools, that type 1 diabetes in relation to type 1 diabetes as a disease worldwide over the last five years, the ketogenic diet is the number one rising topic related to that. So it's the number one rising topic over the last five years worldwide related to type 1 diabetes. And yet we have no long-term randomized controlled trials. We have no guidelines revolving this strategy. And when I looked at these reports, the 17 in the very low carbohydrate round, most, at least half of all these participants were doing it with minimal or no healthcare support. Which, so I, 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 you know, I had a caveat this, but maybe I capped it a little harder here, Jack, to say, when I have this disease, I want to do the best thing I can today to feel better, yeah. right? So as a patient, they're going to do whatever they can. They're going to find the best solution. They're not going to wait for these things. But the medical community has, without those randomized controlled trials, they're going to be hesitant to make any guidelines, obviously, for a number of reasons. I mean, that, that could be a whole different podcast altogether. But suffice it to say, uh, we certainly need those to come if we ever hope that they're going to reach guidelines and reach uh, more patients um, to give better resolution on these approaches to patients with type 1. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that's exactly uh, a, a great message to wrap up on is that we we need to um, get the message out to both patients and healthcare practitioners uh, that this is an option and it needs to be better studied uh, so we can uh, get this, be sure that it's safe to introduce into widespread practice. Yeah, I mean, imagine... You know, patients are receiving remarkable outcomes with a very low carbohydrate diet and type 1 diabetes, looking at glycemic focus. That's amazing. Like that, that could be, a, that is a unbelievable landmark finding. But what if there's this little thing over here that you have like in 10% of patients that you need to account for that could be fixed if we just knew it existed and could make some adjustments for that subset of the community? That's what these trials could help with. You know, a lot of people think we don't need trials, we don't need, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is if you ever want to see guidelines, you ever want to see it reach mainstream and institutional uh, advice has to get there. And, and direct to your point, uh, Phil, that that's ultimately how it goes, because uh, you can see a lot of stuff that works uh, in an individual person. But when you go to the greater population, it may not work for everyone. Um, but that's just how it goes. And as a result, there will be people who will be skeptical of approaches like this until they see evidence like that. Uh, and that's where we are. So hopefully, uh, I will tell you this, I am directly working to address that problem and uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Great. And so uh, for people who want to follow the uh, work that you're doing, where is the uh, best place for them to do so? I, uh, I was not on social media because I always thought I was, you know, kind of you know, drags you down type thing. Um, but it is a great place to share information and reach people. So I am on Twitter. I have a Twitter, uh, A-Kutnik, A-K-O-U-T-N-I-K. Uh, and I actually try to stay active on there uh, as much as I can. Um, and uh, that's where most people can find me. I have a little LinkedIn URL below that where you can find other information. I have free resources and other things, about five pages of free resources if people are looking to find more information on type 1 diabetes 
or any of the work we've done or videos that I made about it, it's all free. So if you can go on uh, my uh, uh, Twitter and find that URL, you can kind of get into the weeds and find a bunch of free stuff for people if they want to find out more. Outstanding. Well, as usual, this has been a lot of fun. My brain uh, is both expanded and full at this point. Um, thank you for being with us, Andrew. I want to, uh, I hope that we we get to take another uh, opportunity to talk with you in a little more personal manner about uh, maybe some things that are more opinion and less uh, uh, science. Yep. I think one day, man. Yeah, we too. That was, well, revolving type one diabetes. That's that's that is a very personal thing. You know, yeah, it absolutely. is. At the end of the day, you wake up every single day, and not even wake up. Like in the middle of the night, you often wake up in the middle of the night too, managing this disease twenty four hours, seven days a week for the rest of your life. So uh, it is very personal, um, and uh, but there's a whole host of other things we could kind of tap into as well. Very good. Well, we'll put you on the rotating list. Honored Dr. Phil Ovedia uh, and uh, Andrew Kutnick. I'm Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Go ahead and subscribe. We drop a new episode every Tuesday, and we'll talk to you next. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.